right. Well, good morning. <clears throat> I couldn't uh, bring my wife with me because she had to get back. My, uh, of those seven grandkids, four of them, I, we have two sets of twins, three years old and under. So <clears throat> she's been very busy helping. In fact, today is the birthday for our youngest set, uh, one year old. So I <clears throat> want to wish Malachi and Ezekiel, future prophets of God, wish them a happy birthday. But um, now Pastor Milton told me I needed to double mask and stand behind the drum shield, but I'm just not sure that's going to work for preaching, brother. So if, if it's okay, I'm going to do it this way. But it is a joy for me to be here. Um, very grateful for our partnership in the ministry of the gospel. Um, God's doing a great work in the Philippines, and as a result, actually, it's extending beyond the Philippines. We've built relationships there that's reaching now into Malaysia, Myanmar, and even Pakistan. Um, there's a brother that I know you're connected with in Pakistan that I'll actually mention in the message this morning. Um, Pastor Mike had asked me to speak on missions this morning, <clears throat> and I know for at least for me when I was younger, if I heard a missionary was in town, he's going to talk about missions, immediately I began to feel a little bit of guilt because often that sermon would somehow find its way around to either convincing me I wasn't doing enough to support missions or that I wasn't thinking enough about going on the mission field myself. And so uh, that, that was often a motivation by guilt, and that was just an issue I had. But, but God motivates us to missions in a different way, not out of obligation or duty. And, and I want this morning to draw our attention to our brother, the Apostle Paul, and what it was that motivated him to Christ's mission, a mission which we are all on, by the way, to make disciples of all the nations. And so if you could please turn in your Bible or flip on your device to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that's where we're going to be this morning. And as you're doing that, I would just like to ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you that we can gather together. What a blessing and privilege it is to be able to fellowship with one another and as as Alvin mentioned earlier, just from Psalm 133, how blessed is it for brothers, for brethren to dwell together in unity. And so, Lord, I pray now as we come to your word that you would, Lord, by your spirit, give us understanding, draw us near to Christ, and Lord, use your word to motivate us in a right way to the work of your mission on this earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought I would start this morning by asking you the question, when exactly did the Christian missionary movement begin? Was it at Urbana in the 1970s? Or should we go back further to the 1800s, to the English Baptist Missionary Society? Or even further to the 1700s, to the Moravians and their missions work? Well, actually, the Christian missionary movement began just after Pentecost. We have to go all the way back to the birth of the church and it began, it may, it may surprise you that it did not begin through a, a missions conference or a church committee or, or someone just feeling inspired to go outside of Jerusalem to foreign lands. Actually, did you realize the Christian missionary movement was launched by an execution? Execution of our brother Stephen. Luke records us in uh, Acts 8, verse 1, when he says these words, uh, Saul was in hearty agreement uh, with putting him to death, that is Stephen. We'll come back to Saul in a minute. And then Luke says this, On that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, 
And those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. You see, that event, that execution of our brother Stephen, actually his death did not bring about the results that those who killed him wanted to bring. It says that the people were scattered, which is what they wanted, and that a great persecution arose. But notice from what Luke says, it did not stop them from proclaiming the gospel. It actually stirred it up and spurred them to proclaim the gospel. And so we could say the Christian missionary movement began as a result of persecution. And as we think about our history, the history of Christianity, uh, that suffering, the persecution, even death has not stopped. It's only continued. Uh, recently, a pastor in a closed Islamic country uh, that I have a relationship with sent me a photo. And it was a photo of a fellow pastor who had been murdered. And he had said in the last two weeks, three pastors in his city had been murdered for being Christians. And so this persecution has not stopped. This pastor, in fact, himself has received several death threats. A man sat next to him on a bus not long ago and named the names of all of his children and his wife and his address and the school that they went to and then showed him a gun and said, you need to stop talking about Jesus. This is in our world today. In fact, now he has uh, gone into hiding for a little bit because of he's been accused of bringing the gospel to Muslims, which is a serious crime in his country. But he doesn't want to stop. And so when I think about him, I wonder, well, what, what motivates him to continue to move forward even in the midst of that? I think about our brother, the Apostle Paul. You remember what he went through in 2 Corinthians 11, right? He describes all the things that he encountered in bringing the gospel to other lands. In fact, let me read a few uh, verses from 2 Corinthians 11, his own testimony. He says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city. You're getting the point, right? <laughs> and he could have added to this list a lot more things that he suffered. Loneliness, rejection, betrayal, false accusations against him, people questioning his motives. And so when I think about Paul, when I think about my brother in Pakistan, when I think about the many brothers and sisters over the years who have continued to proclaim the gospel, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, the question comes to my mind, what, what motivated them to continue in that? What caused them to press forward? even in the midst of great difficulty and suffering, because I want to learn from their example, don't you? I want to learn what, what it was that motivated them. What was it that motivated Paul so that I, too, could be motivated? Well, Paul tells us explicitly and directly in 2 Corinthians 5, he gives us uh, three motivations that he, uh, in his life, to bring the gospel and he's so, in this letter to 2 Corinthians, a letter which he wrote, by the way, to address false accusations which were being made against him, that he was not really apostle, that, that he had false motives, that he had evil motives in bringing them the message of Christ. And so he writes 2 Corinthians not to defend himself because of his ego, but because he did not want his message to be undermined. 
he did not want there to be any hindrances as he was preaching the gospel and he did not want people to think he was doing it out of false motives. And so here in 2 Corinthians 5, he tells us exactly what it was that motivated him. And so we're going to look at verses 11 through 21. And again, we will see here three declarations made by Paul which motivated him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Three reasons that will give us a mission-minded motivation. Let's consider the first in verses 11 through 13. What, what, one thing that motivated Paul to missions, to bringing the Great Commission to all the peoples, was a reverence for Christ. A reverence for Christ. Look with me at verse 11. Paul says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. As good Bible students, we remember context is king, right? And notice that first word in verse 11. Paul says, therefore... And so that word, therefore, tells us Paul is going to say something based upon something that he just said. And what it was that he just said is in verse 10. So let's go up one verse. I want to read that to you. He expresses in the beginning of chapter 5 his desire to please the Lord while on this earth. And then in verse 10 he says this, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. You see, Paul was reflecting on something here in verse 11. He was reflecting on that day when he would stand before what he calls the judgment seat of Christ. And that is what prompted him to say, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, Lord here refers to Christ, knowing the fear of Christ, we persuade men. That word persuade has the idea of to convince to appeal to, to seek favor, to win over. It's used a number of times in the book of Acts, and Paul uh, seeking to persuade people regarding the gospel. And that's what it means here, that he's speaking of his desire to, to influence, to win over for the sake of the gospel. And what was it that motivated him to do that, to persuade? He says right there again in verse 11, knowing what? Knowing the fear of of the Lord we persuade men. It was the fear of the Lord that prompted him to action. This is the first declaration that he makes in regards to what motivated him for missions. You see, Paul knew one day, as he says in verse 10, he would stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What did he mean by fear of the Lord? Was he picturing that day when he would be standing there cowering and shivering in, in terror? It's like, oh, maybe, maybe I didn't share enough. Maybe, maybe I didn't win enough converts. Am I going to be punished right now? No, that's not what he meant. Uh, verse 10 speaks of a judgment seat, but it's a bema seat, a seat of reward. Paul's not thinking about and reflecting with this attitude or or feeling of terror here. He's recognizing that one day he's going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account for what he has done, and he did not want to displease his Lord and Savior. That term, fear of the Lord, it's used often in the Old Testament, and we have to remember it's a term that does refer to reverence and awe and worship, but it's based upon relationship, if you're a believer. 
In fact, Charles Bridges, a 19th century theologian, I, I like how he expressed it or he defined the fear of the Lord. He said this, The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. I like that. An affectionate reverence. See, that reminds us there is a reverence, right? That, there, that we do stand before a holy and transcendent and all-powerful and sovereign God. But it's, a, it's, a, it's based upon, it's connected to, it's a reverence that is rooted in relationship. An affectionate reverence. And I think that's what Paul is thinking about here as he's standing before the judgment seat, the, the Bema seat, the seat of reward of his Lord and his Savior and his Master. He could not fathom facing Christ only to report that he had done very little with the message of the one who had redeemed him. You know, so often we, as we think about the Great Commission, we we know, of course, the Great Commission is focused upon the command to make disciples of all the nations, right? But sometimes we can forget or, or not remember what Jesus said right before that. You remember Matthew 28, verse 18? All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, in response to that, go and make disciples of all the nations, and so I think this is what was on the forefront of Paul's mind. Certainly he had an affectionate reverence for Christ and was motivated by that. But remember, it was an affectionate reverence. He, he remembered that Christ had given him a command, had given him a commission. Yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Yes, he is our brother. Yes, he is the Lamb of God. Yes, he is our Savior. But let's not forget he's also our Master. He's also our Lord. You remember Thomas, right? When he came to recognize standing in that room and Jesus had him feel his hands in his side. You remember what Thomas did? Ah, okay, I knew it was you. Okay, that's great. Slap him on the back. Is that how you responded? You remember he said, my Lord, my master and my God. Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, we call Jesus Lord idea of master. Romans 10, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, as master. We, we, we need to remember that. It's an affectionate reverence, but remember, don't leave out the reverence part. He is our master. He is our king. We are his doulos, his slaves, and he's commanded us to bring his message. Verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that in response to that gospel message that we receive by his grace, it says we no longer live for ourselves, but for whom? For him who died and rose again on our behalf. And so Paul was motivated to mission out of this affectionate reverence for Christ. And I think it's important for us to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, what, what is your level of commitment to Christ's mission? Both here in Riverside County, but also abroad. Do you see the Great Commission as a strategy to be considered or, or as a command to be obeyed? Are you motivated out of an affectionate reverence for our King and our Savior to make Him known? Let's follow the example of our brother Paul. He was motivated to missions first out of a reverence for Christ. And secondly, a second motivation we find here in the passage, after Paul in verses 11 to 13, he, he describes here his true motives 
that they would know that uh, he, he hoped that for their sake they understood what it was that motivated him to preach the gospel. After that, then, he gives a second declaration of what motivated him to mission, and that was this, the love of Christ. He was motivated first out of reverence for Christ, secondly out of the love of Christ. Look with me at verse 14. He says, Therefore, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old passed away. Behold, new things have come. So notice here, Paul begins verse 14 with a second declaration of motivation, and that is the love of Christ, he says, controls us. Now he's speaking there, not of his, not his love for Christ, but of Christ's love for him. In fact, uh, that word control has the idea of constraining or, or forcing something like the walls of a canal, um, you know, that would force and direct water a certain direction. And Paul expresses or uses the word here with this idea of a, of a, of a compelling, of a pressure. In fact, the NIV translates it this way, the love of Christ compels us. But it's not a negative compelling it's not like some unavoidable obligation or oppression or duty. Actually, it's, it's the kind of compelling that a mother experiences for her child. You know, when your child cries, needs attention, needs to be fed, there's a compelling there. But it's not a negative one. Or, or it's like a compelling that you might have if you're a, a teammate on a team to give your all for the sake of the team. There is pressure there. There is a compelling, but it's a positive forcing, so to speak. And here Paul says the love of Christ is what compelled him to bring the gospel of Christ. Notice he says in verse 16, he says, We recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. What, what does he mean by that? What is that exactly saying? Well, I think what he's talking about here is, is at one point in time, he once saw Christ as a blasphemer, right? He once saw Christ as, this isn't the Messiah, he's a false Messiah. All the way to the point that he had Stephen participated in his martyrdom and went about chasing down Christians for a time, as we read in the early parts of Acts. But after Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, Paul is saying here, all of that changed. My entire perspective changed. My entire understanding of who Jesus is changed. And my entire understanding of people changed changed he not only saw them he saw them no longer according to the flesh rather now he sees people through different eyes through the eyes of eternity no longer does he despise those who were different now now he carries a burden for them and i have to pause here for a minute and just stand in amazement at the sovereign plan of god Luke points out Saul was in hearty agreement at the stoning of Stephen. So this man, who we could say had an integral part in beginning the Christian missionary movement as a persecutor, now is the leader of that movement. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Saul the great persecutor is now Saul or Paul the great missionary. It's amazing to think about that. And this was a man compelled by 
the love of Christ for him, a love he came to realize on the Damascus Road as he was off looking to persecute more Christians, and Christ grabbed hold of him that day. And that love of Christ that came, he came to realize is what then now has compelled him to bring the message of Christ to those around him. And brothers and sisters, if, if we are be, to be compelled in the same way, if we are to be motivated as Paul was motivated, despite his circumstances, he continued forward, we really need to understand what he understood about the love of Christ. Take a look with me again at verse 14. He says, The love of Christ compels us, why? Having concluded this, that one died for all. And then in verse 15 he says, He died for all. And then in verse 15 again, For him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see the repetition there, the emphasis? He died for all. He died for all. He died on their behalf. Paul is talking about here substitutionary atonement. That Christ took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserved. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in John 15. Greater love has no one than this than he who lays down his life for his friends. And how great is that love when the one laying down his life is the Holy One of God. And that the ones he calls friends are us. <laughs> Romans 5, 6 says, right? For while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet worthy, wonderful, beautiful people, Some of you remember that passage. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, don't let the familiarity of those words diminish their impact. While we were yet rebels, treasonous, anti-God, living our own lives, Jesus became man and says he died for us. I mean, let, let's say that you had gotten into a car accident. And the car is burning around you and someone comes and rescues you out of that car, but in doing so ends up giving up his own life. Would you not feel compelled in some way to do all you could to show appreciation? And then what if you learned that that same person that gave his life to rescue you was someone whose child you had killed in that car accident? Reminds me of Elizabeth Elliot. You're probably familiar with her story, Jim Elliot. Her husband, in 1954, had prepared himself to go minister the gospel to the Alca Indians in Ecuador. And as he landed on the beach, within a few days, they, they were murdered. You know what Elizabeth Elliot did? I think it was about a year later, she went back. They had a little, little girl, one-year-old daughter. She went back to that same tribe and stayed there with a few others to bring the gospel, to carry out the mission her husband had been called to. And you know, one of the first converts was one of the men who had killed um, the group that her husband was in. It's an amazing story. You think, of, what would compel her to do that? To go back to the very ones who took her husband's life. You know, the, the friend that I mentioned, the brother from Pakistan, I asked him uh, just a month or so ago, brother, with all that's going on, what are you going to do? And he says, I I've got to preach the gospel. And, and I said, why? He said, because 
Christ loves me. I'm burdened for them. I want them to know that same love. It's amazing. The love of Christ is a strong motivator. As well it should be. And these are great examples of love, but there's one far greater. The greatest example, right, was when the sovereign, loving Son of God became a man in order to die for those who were his enemies. That's the greatest expression of love this world has ever seen. You know, we hear that term, Jesus loves you. It's true. The love of Christ compels us. And what makes that his death and, and, the, and the receiving of the gospel and faith, what makes it so uh, compelling is how it transforms the heart. Paul speaks of that here in verse 15. He says, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And then we ask, well, how does that happen? How does a person who's a, a rebel living for him or herself, how, how does that person then live for someone else, live for Christ? Well, Paul says in verse 17, why? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Paul's saying when we come to Christ, everything has changed. Everything has changed. We, we live no longer for ourselves because we have a new master. We have a new heart, a new heart that by God's grace gives us the ability by God's spirit to live for that new master. And so we are instinctively, as a new creature, compelled to his mission. And looking back at verse 16, as I mentioned briefly a moment ago, that new heart, that transformed heart, not only looks at Christ differently, but looks at others differently. As new creatures in Christ, we should see people differently. How do you look at the people around you? And I say this in light of all that's happened in the last year. How do you view those who are in our Samaria or in distant lands or even in our own community? You know, I, as Pastor Milton Vincent, uh, mentioned earlier, I have five children. They're adult children. Our youngest was born with significant physical deformity at birth. So her body is, is uh, twisted, and, and uh, uh, she's in a wheelchair. And, you know, <clears throat> especially as she was younger, when we would go by, I, I would see people's stares. You know, and most of the time it was out of curiosity because they're kind of like, how, how's her body shaped? They're just, they haven't seen that. So they're curious. But... But, you know, those looks bother me, but not as much as those looks of some who look at her with disgust and look down at her as if she is abnormal. And, you know, brothers and sisters, we can do that in a spiritual sense, can't we? We can look down at others who don't believe what we believe, who don't think what we think, who don't value what we value. Oh, those liberals, I can't stand them. Oh, those conservatives, they're all bigots. All oh, those criminals who are in prison, let them rot there. They deserve the consequences for their crimes. Oh, those uh, in the LGBTQ movement. Uh, oh, those white people. Oh, those black people. Those Asians, those Latinos, those Democrats, those Republicans, those socialists, those racists, those atheists, those agnostics, those Muslims. 
those people who wear masks, those anti-vaxxers, homeschoolers, right? The list goes on. We have all these categories, don't we, that we put people into. But listen, brothers and sisters, there's only two categories. There's only two, and they're not based on skin color or culture or ethnic background or vocation or intelligence or class or wealth or abilities or religious affiliations or philosophy. Brothers and sisters, it's saved or unsaved. It's lost or found. It's those who are headed to eternal life or those headed to eternal death. That's all that matters. But some of the Facebook posts I see from Christians, even to non-believers, as as they respond to various political issues or moral issues or opinions about all that's been going on this last year, opinions about government, governing authorities, issues or opinions about those from other ethnic backgrounds or how people voted. I mean, all these things, right? It grieves me what I see, not because there's disagreement, but in how that disagreement is conveyed. People are not the enemy. They're the mission field. And if we're new creatures, the love of Christ will burden us, will compel us. Not to put them in these boxes and categories. It will compel us to bring them the only message that matters. And again, I'm not saying you can't have opinions on all these things. But are you letting those opinions rise above what is most important? We have a mission to be salt and light not to fight for rights, not to fight for comforts. We're ambassadors. An ambassador doesn't go into a foreign land and then try to change everything in the land. They represent the one who sent them. Right? And does not Paul even use that terminology here? We are ambassadors for Christ? Let's remember that. Out of the love of Christ, that it compels us to express that love and to help others come to understand what that love is. So we, we are motivated to missions, first by reverence for Christ, secondly, the love of Christ, and then thirdly, reconciliation through Christ. Look with me at verse 18. Paul says this, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then those words, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, is there anything that sticks out to you in these verses here? Anything you see repeated? That word reconciliation, right, or a variation of it, five times here in three verses, twice in verse 18, twice in verse 19, once in verse 20, and then an illustration of it in verse 21. Here Paul speaks of this reconciliation, and here we find the third and perhaps most powerful motivation to mission, and that is the reconciliation through Christ. 
You know, it's interesting, Paul's the only New Testament author that, that uses this word that's translated as reconciliation. And it, its root idea means simply to exchange, um, uh, particularly exchanging money or goods. But when it's used in the context of relationship, it speaks of an exchange of hostility for friendship. And brothers and sisters, this reconciliation that Paul speaks of here, it it really goes even beyond the doctrine of substitution. It goes beyond the doctrine of justification, which he alludes to in verse 21. Um, certainly, substitution and justification, the substitution that Christ has paid for the sins of those who would believe, justification that we're declared not guilty for the sins we have committed. Those are both wonderful truths, but God's reconciliation, this is one we need to step back and pause for a minute. Let me describe, picture, if you will, a courtroom scene. All right, we're all here in court, and we all stand as defendants. And we're guilty of the crimes we have committed. And the judge is just getting ready to hand down the sentence. And as we're waiting for that sentence, in this analogy, justification would be this, that the judge declares not guilty. Not guilty. And the basis of that declaration would be that, that the Punishment that we deserve has already been paid. Someone else has paid for those crimes. Now, here's where reconciliation comes in. It's when we come to realize that those crimes we had committed, those crimes for which we are guilty of, those crimes for which we deserve to be punished, those crimes were committed against the judge himself. And reconciliation means that the judge comes down from his bench after declaring us not guilty based on the fact someone else had paid for those crimes. He comes down and extends a hand of friendship. And beyond that, he takes us into his own home. And beyond that, he treats us as his very own. That's what Paul's talking about here when he says reconciliation. And we got to remember, we are the ones, right, who cause the hostility. As Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10 of Romans 5, he says, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through his Son. So, Scripture is very clear. We were the ones that were sinning against him. We were the enemies. We were the hostile. We were the treasonous and God's word declares that not only have we been offered amnesty, but we have been offered friendship. Jesus said in John 15, 15, I have called you friends, speaking his disciples. <laughs> Again, ponder, step, hold on here. Think about that for a minute. All that we have done against God. All the sin that we've committed. All the wrongs that we have carried out against him. And he would offer us peace? He would offer us friendship? And more than that, he would offer to adopt us? This reconciliation is a powerful, powerful truth. It's at the heart of the gospel in many ways. And so Paul here is encouraging us. That's what motivated him as he reflected on the fact that God, and notice this subject here, it's God that's the one who reconciles. We didn't initiate that at all. Notice verse 18. 
All these things are from God who reconciled us. Verse 19, God was reconciling the world. Verse 21, God made him who knew no sin. There's nothing we could do to make it right. It's not as if we had some way to make peace ourselves, to make up for all the things we had committed against him. There was no good deed, no apology, no work that we can do to cover our sin, right? There's nothing we can do to bring peace. It's God who does that. I love what Murray Harris said. Reconciliation does not occur apart from God or in spite of God, but because of God. And how could that be made possible? Look again at verse 18. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. God, verse 19, was in Christ reconciling the world. Verse 21, he made him, that is Christ, to be sin on our behalf. Jesus became the sin bearer. In fact, to such an extent, Paul says he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Now, he doesn't mean there that Jesus was made a sinner, but he was treated as a sinner. And in fact, treated as a great sinner because he did not just bear the sins of one or two people, but countless millions who have put their trust in him. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Again, what an amazing statement. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Another truth that we, we sometimes just, we hear it so often, we let it slip by without reflecting on just how amazing that is. And so that means if, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting here today, that means that on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he lived your life. And if that were not amazing enough, God treats us as if we lived Jesus's life. That's what's been termed a great exchange here in verse 21. It was J. Vernon McGee in reflecting on this passage, and I, I don't think I can do justice to his accent, but he said something along these lines. He, he took my hell down here that I might have his heaven up yonder. <laughs> now, I know Vincent Green could do a much better job with that than I just did. but And it was more than just heaven, right, we were given, but his righteousness. And that righteousness, Philippians 3.9 says, comes through faith. Now, I don't know everyone here. I, I don't know what uh, has brought you here today. I, I don't know where you stand in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we talk about this idea of reconciliation through Christ, I have to stop here as Paul did, as he paused and said, to, he appealed, he uh, pleaded, he begged to be reconciled to God. And I would just ask to make sure that you have thought about that. Have you put your complete faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you genuinely desired to turn from your sin and trust in him alone for salvation? Now, notice I didn't ask this if you say you're a Christian. I did that for many years. People would ask me that. And, and I didn't ask if you had prayed some prayer at one point in your life to receive Christ. I didn't ask if you go to church on a regular basis or read your Bible every day or pray often. I didn't ask those questions. Because the Bible doesn't do that. Paul says here, you're a new creature if you're one of his. You're changed, you're transformed, your desires are different. What you want to do is different. How you live is different. Again, in God's grace, we're not perfect, we understand that, but there's a pursuit, there's a compelling, as Paul expresses here. Has there been a genuine change in your life? 
Pastor Milton mentioned earlier, I, I was a student at UCLA, and um, go Bruins, anybody? Uh, yeah, okay. Remember what I said earlier, there's only two categories of people. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> the pastor, uh, we're staying with a, an elder at our church in Burbank, and <laughs> so uh, my daughter parked her car there. She went to UCLA. She parks her car in front. We were gone a few days. We come back, and the guy had put a USC plate on the front license plate. So I'm trying to think about how I can um, respond. Anyway, that has nothing to do with where we're at here. But there is, there is a transformation. And so at UCLA, I, w- I was con- telling people I was a Christian there, but my life reflected otherwise. There was real no, no real change. And then one day one person asked me, where are you really at with God? And God used that to begin a process of th- realizing, and I, read, I was reading 1 John, by the way, at the time, and it said, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. He who practices sin is of the devil. Or said, if anyone says, I have come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Wow, that hit me right in the heart. I realized I was that guy. I was saying I was a Christian. I affirmed all the facts of the faith. I, I believed that there was a man named Jesus who was the son of God who died for my sin and rose again. I believed those things, but there wasn't a genuine faith. And I knew that by how I lived my life. And John said in 1 John 2, 4, I was a liar. And so that's why I want to appeal to you as you reflect on your life. Has there been a genuine conversion? Have you truly put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you truly experienced his reconciliation? He extends the hand of friendship now, but there will come a point that it will be the hand of judgment. And so, friend, please, please, I beg you, as Paul begged, please consider, are you reconciled to him? If you are Not only have you received the blessings of that reconciliation, but then we'll be compelled to proclaim it, right? Paul said in verse 18, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. We have a message. And again, reflect on the last year. How much fear... How much despair, how much distrust, how much of that has, has been seen in this last year, year and a half? But we have a message that addresses all those things. An incredible message it is. And so, brothers and sisters, beloved, out of reverence for Christ, because of the love of Christ and the reconciliation that we have through Christ, let's be motivated to declare that message to those around us and be motivated to to support those who bring that message abroad and consider are, are you someone that maybe God may be working on your heart to do something like that you've heard it said we're all missionaries wherever we're at and and to, to an extent that's true we all have the mission we are all on the same mission together so let me just Encourage you, meditate on this passage. Think on this text as a way to help you have a right biblical motivation to proclaim that message. On the campus of Wheaton College, there's a plaque that's dedicated to one of its graduates. 
a missionary named Jim Elliott. I mentioned him earlier. At the bottom of the plaque is 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constraineth us. And on the plaque above that, it says these words. Because of the Great Commission, Ed and Jim, together with Nathaniel, Roger, and Peter, went to the mission field willing for anything, anywhere, regardless of the cost. They chose the jungles of Ecuador, inhabited by the Alca Indians. For generations, all strangers were killed by them. After many days of patient preparation and devout prayer, the missionaries made the first friendly contact known to history with the Alcas. On January 8th, 1956, the five missionaries were brutally slain, martyrs for the love of God. Just a few months after Jim Elliott graduated from Wheaton College, he wrote this in his journal. I'm sure many of you remember these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Christ is worth the sacrifice. His message is worth the sacrifice, and certainly the souls of men and women are worth the sacrifice. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it's hard to express just in thinking about these things, the motivations that Paul expressed, reverence for Christ and love of Christ and uh, reconciliation through Christ. It is all about the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for sending your Son so that we could have reconciliation. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the sacrifice you had made. We who you were, were your enemies, who were helpless, and yet you have extended the hand of friendship and have made a way that we could be forgiven and experience fellowship with you. Oh, use these truths in our hearts to motivate us to your mission to make disciples of all the nations, and that with joy and great um, excitement, even though it is hard at times, Lord, that we will be uh, full of that joy in sharing your message and being given the privilege to do so. I pray for my dear brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone. I, I thank you for them. I thank you that you have placed them here in this community. Oh, Lord, may they be, a salt, be salt and light. May you encourage and strengthen the elders here. Give them wisdom and direction in these difficult times. And Lord, use this wonderful church, Lord, to make disciples of, of all the nations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.